1: This is the English
2: Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can subscribe to get new episodes every Thursday. This week, just in time for the Christmas party season, we're taking a trip through millennia with a brief history of alcoholic drinks and their role in merrymaking. From mead to malsum, beer to brandy, and wine to whiskey, they're all here in our figurative, festive pub. And picking their poisons with their requisite histories are English Heritage Curator of Collections, Cameron Moffat. Hello. And drinks expert and writer, Jane Payton. Hello. Let's begin with Cameron first and go back thousands of years to the first alcoholic drink ever invented, which you can buy a more refined version of in English heritage gift shops, by the way. So what is mead and how is it discovered, Cameron?
0: A true mead is simply fermented honey water and nothing else. The acidity of undiluted honey is too high for it to ferment, and in dry conditions, honey can last pretty much forever. It is routinely found included as a grave good in Egyptian tombs, where it looks almost exactly like it did when it was put there. But if you add water, you create the conditions for fermentation to occur, and this happens in nature. Wild honeybees seek out hollows high up in trees for their nests, well away from the many predator animals looking to rob their honey. But animals like bears that can climb trees and have the claws to rip open a hive, they will climb up and they'll eat what they can, leaving an open void containing honey residue. And then it rains into that and the naturally occurring yeasts will ferment the honey water into mead. And since honeybees preceded humans on Earth by millions of years, mead could genuinely be called the drink of deep time. It was already there when human beings appeared on Earth.
2: And so human beings would have discovered it somehow through these trees and would it be sort of dripping off the bark or something? Um...
0: It would be uh, contained in these voids in trees and, um, you know, early humans, they are foragers, they are already immediately looking for honey to rob. They would have come across it immediately and been well aware of it.
2: So, it was almost invented for early humans before they invented it. They just sort of discovered it was there, I suppose.
0: They came across it, yep.
2: So, who drank mead in England? In the past, well, the more recent past, I suppose.
0: Well, you know, for millennia, there really was only mead or similar honey-based drinks before the technique of malting grain had been developed about 6,000 years ago in the Neolithic. And before that, that is, if you wanted an alcoholic drink, you were drinking mead. So malting converts the starches of cereals like barley into sugars, which are the key ingredient for fermentation. So for a very long time before that, it was just mead. There's a lot of work involved in malting barley, but honey can be obtained by raiding a hive. And because mead is generally much stronger than ale, that probably ensured its position as top drink for millennia. But then that starts to change with the agricultural revolution and the Neolithic, because it's much easier to increase production of crops to make more beer and wine than it is to increase the plants that bees feed off in order to make more mead. And if you're cutting down trees to create new fields for crops, then you are reducing the habitat for bees.
2: Right. So everything from Stone Age man to the Vikings and later, anyone living in England could be drinking mead at any one time. Absolutely. What's the difference then between the different types of mead? I gather there are different types. It's, I suppose because there are different honeybees and different types of honey produced.
0: Uh, yes, you can have variations based on the kind of honey that you're using because honey that comes from wildflowers will taste very different to honey that comes from heather up up on the moors. But there are variations on the recipes used for mead, and and some of them have specific names like metheglin, which is mead flavored with various spices, and that name comes from the old Welsh. Uh, because mead was a really big thing in ancient Wales because bees did well up on the uh, heathered covered hills. There are other takes on mead recipes, some of which include fruit, but I think those are relatively recent developments of basic mead.
2: If we had to think of some English heritage sites that were associated with mead making or people drinking the mead, which ones would you come up with?
0: Given the extensive archaeological evidence for huge prehistoric feasting events at Stonehenge in Wiltshire in the southwest of England, it is entirely fair to assume that mead was being consumed there. And there is certainly evidence in the form of beeswax residues in clay pots from Neolithic sites right across Europe, showing that people were harvesting and processing honey thousands of years ago. When we get to the Roman period in Britain, we have evidence in the form of the equipment used to store mead, which does improve like wine, improves with aging. Over 100 bungs or stoppers dating to the 1st to 4th century AD made from stone and pottery were found at Roxeter Roman City in Shropshire in the Midlands. And these had been used to seal ceramic vessels containing mead. And exactly the same evidence is seen at many Roman sites, like those on Hadrian's Walls, such as Corbridge. This technique of using aging mead in ceramic vessels, which are sealed with a bung. This has been seen also at Tintagel Castle in Cornwall in the southwest of England. And that is a site famous for its literary association with King Arthur, and where there's also extensive evidence for large feasting events, this time in the 5th and 6th centuries AD, the date at which an Arthur-type king would have lived. The far southwest carried on having trade contacts with the Mediterranean long after the rest of Britain. And we see that large numbers of wine amphorae, these large ceramic storage vessels, were coming to Tintagel. And once the wine was drunk, the amphorae were reused for storing mead that they were actually making at the site. One excavated building there has been identified as a meadery.
2: Wow. So really, mead was the drink of choice for all kinds of different peoples who inhabited the islands of Great Britain.
0: Yeah, I mean, for a long time, it was the only choice, um, yeah. but it, it, it carried on being popular because you could get the ingredients for free and because it made a very strong drink.
2: Okay, well, speaking of other strong drinks, perhaps not as strong as mead, because there are some weaker versions of the ones we're about to talk about, ale and beer. What's the difference, Jane, between the two, ale and beer?
1: There's no difference now, but until the 18th century, ale was a different drink to beer. So beer contains hops. Ale didn't. Ale was just fermented, malted cereal and water. That was it. And it would have been flavoured with spices, herbs, anything you could throw in there to give it some flavour. It had no shelf life. Hops are preservative, by the way, so they give beer a shelf life. So ale had no shelf life. But when hops were introduced into it, suddenly you had a drink that you didn't have to brew every day. And so ale without hops stopped being the thing. It stopped being the, the primary drink of, uh, of many people in, in England. And um, beer took over. It became ascendant. But also, ale and beer then became the same thing.
2: Right, OK. And am I right in saying then that ale was invented before beer was?
1: Using the term invented, it's better to describe it as developed. So trial and error. But yes, so hops started being used in brewing beer in about the ninth century CE. And beer, ale, had been brewed for thousands of years before that. So yes, you know, worldwide where ale had been brewed or fermented cereals had had been um, consumed, then there were no hops in it. So yes, definitely the earlier, much earlier than hopped beer.
2: I see. And as you say, it's been popular for millennia. Is there any archaeological evidence for early consumption of either of them? Um, Well, let's start with ale.
1: Yes, in Britain, the earliest is in Scotland, actually. In the Orkney Islands, it's a Neolithic site. There's residue on pottery that indicated that cereal was being produced. And there's evidence of malting, mashing, which is a beer-making process, and fermentation as well. It's at a site called Scarabray on the island of Orkney. In England, there's that brewing residue from the Iron Age, so evidence of cereal and fermentation, dating to around 2,000 years ago, And that was discovered when a road was being made or or, or widened between Cambridge and Huntingdon. So it's the A14. Now, that's interesting because that area, even now, is a big area for growing barley. And there's lots of maltings there and the soils are perfect for it. And the the sea air coming off the North Sea is perfect for growing barley in that area.
2: Wow. OK. It's amazing as well that these residues have survived underground. Until they're dug up by archaeologists and, and tested in labs
1: and there's the this whole discipline of archaeobotanical um, you know botanists who specialize in archaeology as well
2: that's the archaeological evidence covered for the existence of ale and the consumption of ale in England is there a sort of beer record somewhere
1: there are written records of, of beer because beer contained hops so the first hopped beer into England, came into, I think it was Norwich, it was sometime in the early 14th century. And then later on, there were hop gardens and hop yards in Kent, 14th, 15th century as well. So there's written evidence for sure. Archaeological evidence, probably not, but written evidence is good to say that we were consuming beer in this country and making it as well from about the 15th century
2: To what extent was ale a drink where one would celebrate with?
1: Ale was an everyday drink, so it certainly included celebrations as well. Affluent people, they'd brew special beers to celebrate a birth or a a marriage. And brewers still brew celebratory beers. So they were brewed for the coronation of of King Charles, royal weddings, sporting events as well. Talking about the medieval period, the church, the Catholic church was very powerful and they would have celebratory, what were known as church ales. So ale meant what you were drinking, but it was also the name of a party or a celebration. So they'd have church ales to celebrate feast days, religious feast days and saints days. And in that case, the parishes would brew beers to be purchased by the parishioners and it would raise funds for the church. Now, there were no strict calendars of these events, so each parish would have their own celebration or they'd choose their own saint or, or a reason to to have a celebration and a festival. And you'd also have special beer made at weddings. They were known as bride ales. So you can see where the word bridal comes from. They were the ale beer made for the ale, the party of the wedding, the bride ale.
2: Right. I'd never associated Brides with drinking ale so much, but um, there you go. <laughs> it's normally cham- champagne, isn't it? That one toasts with uh, at her weddings.
1: So, um, yes, I mean we're to- we're talking historically now. His- so of course, you know, up until probably the 18th century.
2: And it's interesting as well that um, you know this ale is being produced, I presume, for that event on that particular day. As you mentioned, it has a short shelf life, so it I suppose brewed and consumed probably on that day, or at least within about 24, 48 hours?
1: Yes, and um, being a little intoxicated wasn't a bad thing. You were expected to be in fact, because you needed to drink all the ale, but it was also a, a party, so the church authorities would turn a blind eye and they were probably a little intoxicated themselves. But yes, it was all about having a party and celebrating. So drinking alcohol, it wasn't a sin. Being really intoxicated, that's where the sin comes in.
2: So when can we trace legal measures of ale and other alcoholic drinks, as in how much you can pour into a particular vessel, Jane?
1: The earliest written evidence of a legal measure is actually Magna Carta. So in Clause 35 of Magna Carta, it talks about legal measures for ale, wine and corn. And the line goes along something like, there shall be a standard measure for wine, ale and corn, in brackets, the London Quarter, close brackets, throughout the Kingdom. So lots of people think that it must relate to a quart. The London quarter must be a quart, which is about two pints. But historians don't know what the legal measure for the ale and the wine was because the quarter referred to a measure of weight rather than volume of liquid. So it was relating to the corn. The London quarter was a measure relating to corn, not to the ale and the, the wine. And The most recent uh, legal measure for beer and cider and anything um, mead as well, if you're you're pouring it draught, is a pint. And that came in, I think, Cameron, you'll be able to address this because the English Heritage building at the Jewel House in in London is where the original measure for what would become a a pint is housed.
2: Yes. Uh, And Cameron, this is just over the road from the Houses of Parliament, isn't it?
0: It is. It's an absolutely lovely site. This little sort of intimate courtyard complex tucked in amongst the enormous buildings of, of the rest of the complex there in Westminster. In the 19th century, the British government put a lot of work into the standardization of measurements, ranging from uniting the country in terms of time to make train travel work more efficiently, to weights and measures. And in the 1860s, the Department of Weights and Measures moved their offices into the Jewel Tower opposite the Houses of Parliament, which is, as I've said, is a lovely site and really well worth visiting. And in their work there, they standardized the pint measurement in part to control the high levels of drinking in Britain at the time and to manage how much alcohol could be sold at once. And in the Jewel Tower, there is this very handsome bronze vessel, which is the earliest known official pint measure.
2: So it's kind of the mother pint vessel, I suppose. (laughs) Okay, well, speaking of pint vessels, I know that you can drink cider out of one. This, of course, this drink is very much associated with Herefordshire, Worcestershire, Gloucestershire, and Somerset. So why are those regions particularly associated with cider, Jane?
1: Apple orchards grew all over the country, but with land use changing and over the centuries land being converted to arable farming or animal farming, then orchards were grubbed up. But in the West Country, they really held on and the soils and the climate are really good for apples in that part of the country as well. Cider was traditionally produced in the home and in rural counties and rural parts of the country like the West Country. They had fewer breweries for beer because it was a rural area and beer and brewing tended to be more urban. So cider was the primary drink of those areas and in many places it still is actually. So you you associate, as you said, those counties with cider and it's cider land.
2: So when was cider first introduced to England?
1: It's hard to be specific. There isn't much archaeological evidence or written evidence either, but The Celts were cider drinkers, and they arrived in Britain around 3,000 years ago. Now, you can make cider from crab apples, which are wild apples, which which grow, or or feral apples. Now, the cider may have been imported, because they were traders as well, the Celts were, or they um, might have been importing it from Asturias, from Basque country, from Normandy, which were also Celt areas. The Romans invaded and they brought eating apples with them. And they also brought orcharding techniques. So cider would have been made from eating apples or made in a much more effective way from the Romans coming. And then the Normans came, 1066, and they were Northmen. They were Norsemen men from, from Scandinavia. Cider was one of their drinks as well. So they learnt that from the Celts, because the Celts were already in Normandy. And so they came to England bringing tannic cider apples, very important, because they make much better cider, and also improved pressing machinery. So, um, yeah, cider became a thing, and, and um, it is associated with the Normans, actually, and them bringing it to England, but it was already here. But it was improved, certainly, by by the Normans coming.
2: And when we say the Celts, are we... Still talking about people who've come over from Ireland?
1: Yes, because the Ireland, they were um, cider drinkers as well. So wherever the Celts went, they took this um, ability to make cider or to drink cider and knowledge of cider as well. You know, Astorias, this is an aside, but Astorius is northern Spain. Mm. That's one of the oldest cider making regions in the world. And there's archaeological proof of that.
2: Fascinating. So I suppose... Before the black drink came along, shall we say, in, in Ireland, it was really cider that was the the nation's tipple.
1: Well, they were already drinking beer as, as well. And the black stuff came because um, it was imported from London. So it was London Porter, which is a, a dark style of beer. And um, they started brewing it in, in Dublin. They imported it and then started brewing it themselves. But yes, cider is a drink of Ireland. And we, we don't think of that because the black stuff is so dominant there. Even now, I mean, there's some really good cideries in Ireland, always has been, it's been, it's a rural drink.
2: Of course, this leads us nicely into our next question about a certain Irish brand of cider, which came out, or at least it was very well advertised about 15 years ago, Magna's. And cider really did enjoy this revival. Has cider experienced other historical peaks and troughs in popularity, Jane?
1: Yes, it has. And the Irish brand, Magnus, that's considered to be really starting off a new era for cider. Now, it is very commercial cider and it's mostly sugar and water, as most commercial ciders are. But what it's doing, it's like a gateway. So people taste that and they think, oh, I like that. Now I'll try something else. And they move on to real ciders sometimes where it's just fermented um, apple juice and um, not full of sugars. But yes, so golden ages for cider. There was a golden age. In fact, the golden age in England for cider was in the 17th century and early 18th century. And that's when wine like ciders were made. Cider making processes were improved and it was a real sense of pride to make really good ciders that you could have on the dining table and to drink like wine. Now, the interregnum helped in this case because there was no court. So the nobility, they returned to their country estates and they experimented with cider making and they were raising apples and apples are, uh, they don't reproduce true to type. So every single apple seed is a potential new apple. So the nobility were experimenting and hybridising and growing apples and raising them and some of them might be good for cider, some might not be. So it became a real hobby for them. Now, also, Cromwell made trade barriers between certain winemaking countries. And so you couldn't get wine from certain countries, but there was an alternative, which was cider wine. So it was high in alcohol and you drank it in smaller glasses. You didn't glug it back like you small cider you would do. So France being one of the enemies of, of Britain, that's always been a country that was penalised by not having its wine or its brandy. And Cider has, in some cases, been the alternative to that.
2: Yes. And you've mentioned this period, the Interregnum, which people may or may not have heard of. This is the period in the mid-1600s where King Charles I has been executed and Oliver Cromwell has become Lord Protector. Another thing, Jane, I'd like to pick up on is um, this idea of Posh cider, shall we say? Did it ever sort of become a drink that was a you know served in a fluted glass, for example?
1: Yes, cider is actually the original purposely sparkled drink, and in the 17th century, in this period which we were just talking about, the interregnum and afterwards as well, into the um, when King Charles II came back, the Restoration, there were cider makers and gentlemen cider makers and nobility, they were experimenting with the secondary fermentation in the bottle. Now to do that, you bottle cider in this case, and you add a little bit of sugar, and the yeast that's still in the cider will ferment again in the bottle. This makes a fermentation and bubbles. And if you have a good stopper for your bottle, i.e. cork, which the English used for their bottles, then you can keep that carbonation in the bottle. So this was the original sparkling drink. Decades later, London wine importers started doing the same thing to still wines from the Champagne region of France. So the original sparkling champagne was actually made in London through the inspiration and innovation of West Country cider makers. And the French have acknowledged this. They called this sparkling wine being done in the English fashion. So when people think that cider, that champagne was invented in France, it wasn't. It was actually developed in, in England through cider, evolved through cider.
2: Gosh, we're, re- we're really upsetting the apple cart here, aren't we? <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, That's so interesting. I didn't know that at all. There's also the connection with
1: glass as well. If you have lots of pressure, carbon dioxide pressure in a bottle, your glass needs to be really solid and really tough. And some English scientists and um, alchemists were experimenting in the 1620s with glass making. And they realised that if you used coal to fire your um, furnace, then the impurities in the coal would go into the glass and make it much more solid. And it was that type of glass, also known as the English glass, by the way. The Germans called it the English glass and the French called it le verre anglais. That type of solid glass meant that you could withstand the pressure in the bottle with also the cork, which gave you a, a, an airtight seal. So glass, cork and the innovation of um, secondary fermentation, all English, although the cork came from uh, Portugal, but, you know, English innovation.
2: The English really leading in alcoholic drink production here um, and probably consumption. What do we know about cider's role as a midwinter drink, though, Jane?
1: Well, it still is a midwinter drink in many places, certainly in the West Country, and it's through this celebration, this festivity called Wassailing, which happens on Twelfth Night, which now is January the 5th, but before... The Gregorian calendar was instituted in England, 1752. Then Twelfth Night was January the 17th. And nowadays that's known as Old Twelvey. So you have this event called wassailing either on January the 5th, Twelfth Night, or Old Twelfth Night, 17th of January. And what happens, it's merrymaking. And this has happened since the medieval period. And there's two ways of wassailing. So you can go around from house to house with a bowl singing at people's doors. It's a communal bowl of cider and you're drinking your cider and you're singing at somebody's door and they might give you some money, they might give you some food and they might even give you a drink of something. And this was known as wassailing. Now we do this even now, but we do it with carol singing going round from house to house. So wassailing was something that you did a little bit later on into January. This is where carol singing evolved really. But there's another way of um, wassailing as well. And this has got a real pagan element to it. I love this type of wassail. I've done it myself. What you do, even now, you go into an orchard and you bless the orchard because you want to have a good harvest. And this happens also on Twelfth Night. So you pour cider onto the roots of the trees and you need to scare the evil spirits away. So you will have a hullabaloo of people with banging drums and pots and pans. Somebody might have a shotgun and they'll shoot through the crown of the tree, an apple tree, and they'll fire it to scare away the evil spirits. Now, they want the good spirits to come, so they'll hang slices of toast that are dipped in cider or slices of bread dipped into cider. So the little birds will come and the birds contain good spirits. And this is all about celebrating the orchard, but it's also asking the spirits to give a good harvest and it's really good fun and lots and lots of cider is drunk at this type of festivity.
2: And don't people also sing to their apple trees as well?
1: there are some wassailing songs and I'm not going to try because I will sound like, you know how people always take on a West Country accent when they're pretending to be pirates? <laughs> I'll I'll sound like a pirate if I do it. But yes, they, they sing to trees. It's just, it's great fun. and It helps and to bring
2: good luck and good fortune and a good harvest, a good crop.
1: Yes. And what's really good, I think, about doing this nowadays, it's keeping the tradition going, but also it's, making people think about the trees and think, wow, aren't apple trees incredible? Here they are in midwinter, dormant, and inside they are going to come to life and they're retaining their strength. And so in, in spring they can burst forth with this blossom and then we'll have some wonderful apples um, in, the, in the harvest time later in the year. And it all starts because of the wassail, you see.
2: What about um, weak ciders? Would they have been drunk... As an alternative to ale, for example, say say you didn't have the hops around?
1: It depends where you are in the country. So if you have access to ale or beer, then you, you can drink small ale or small beer. But if you are a cider-drinking part of the country, or if cider is your drink, then you can have something called small cider or ciderkin. And some cider makers still do ciderkins, and they are low alcohol. There might be 2 or 3% of alcohol and they're made from the second pressing of the apples. So you've pressed the apples first, you've got most of the juice out of them. You've made cider that can ferment up to 8% if you've got a hardy yeast and the right conditions of temperature. And if you want to make a ciderkin or a small cider, you use the second pressing of the apples and you've got less sugar in in that juice. So you're going to get a lower alcohol cider.
2: Cameron, Which English heritage sites have got a history of cider production or cider drinking?
0: The physical and artifactual evidence for cider making comes quite late, I have to say. In the west of England, you start to get these large round stone troughs for mashing the apples from the 17th century. What what Jane was telling us was the sort of when cider really kicked off. The mashing was done with a horse who walked in a circle around the trough, turning the wheel that ground the fruit up. The English heritage site with good evidence for cider is Boscobel House in Shropshire, where we know from documentary evidence that in the 19th century, farm workers were actually partly paid in the cider produced at the site. And in our recent redisplay project there, we dressed one of the barns as a cider making room and we bought this amazing antique cider press from probably from Gloucestershire, one of the other cider making counties. And we have that uh, all set up and on display there.
2: And of course, Bosco House, we've done an episode on before. And this is famously the house.
0: Going back to uh, Charles II, hiding there. Yes, yes. yes.
2: So he, he wasn't quite Charles II at the time because it was the Civil no. Wars period. But yeah. uh, he was on the run and hid, uh, not in a cider tree, but in an oak tree, in, a, in an oak forest, effectively.
0: He hid in an oak, an oak tree. He hid in an attic full of cheeses. He hid in a priest's hole underneath the floorboards. He was all over that site.
2: Let's move on to another section then, and um, different types of drinks, wine and spirits. We often associate the Romans with wine, but is that an accurate starting point for wine arriving in England, Cameron?
0: Yes, yes, I would say it is. It's after the invasion of 43 AD that the evidence for wine in the form of amphorae, these large ceramic storage vessels that wine was transported in. That's the point where it becomes widespread. But before that, in the Iron Age, wine was making its way into Southeast England and Wessex, where the connections, the trading connections were best with the continent. An extensive trade network for the exchange of commodities like metals and amber had been established across Europe in the Bronze Age. And once wine was being produced in volumes large enough to trade in the Iron Age, it became a hugely important commodity. The best evidence for pre-invasion wine drinking is these amphorae. And for wine mixing paraphernalia, wine drinking glasses, those are also found quite often. And these turn up used as grave goods in elaborate royal burials, such as the Lexton Tumulus near Colchester. And we have used mulsum in the title, so I must just jump in here and talk about mulsum. Otherwise, I'll lose the moment. That is another elite drink that the wine mixing paraphernalia seen in these um, high status burials was probably used for. Honey and wine were frequently used together. One of honey's special uses was in mulsum, which is a Roman aperitif made of watered wine sweetened with honey. The Romans drank their wine watered down, either with cold or hot water. Only barbarians drank their wine undiluted, and the Romans were very snobbish about this. Drinking to get hammered was not the Roman way.
2: Ah, very interesting. So um, it's a bit like how the later Britons would have had their ale. They were watering down their sort of primary drink in order to sort of get on with life, I suppose, and not be drunk all day.
0: Well, you make it in varying strengths, yes, and and the low alcohol by volume beer and all these alcoholic drinks, that is very much what you would be drinking through the day and more than the alcohol, you are getting sustenance, you're getting nutrition, you're getting the calories, and you are being hydrated by the water that you're drinking as you drink this ale, this not very strong at all ale, small beer, small mead, that kind of thing.
2: Speaking of being hydrated, the economy has certainly been hydrated by alcoholic production and consumption. And English wine sales have boomed in recent years. Were there English wine producers in the past before the talk of you know, bumper crops due to warmer weather? Jane?
1: It's really hard to say because of the archaeological evidence of winemaking not being there. So the Romans wouldn't have been, there were vines here, by the way, but there would have been a memory from home rather than to make wine out of if you had an option of importing it, which they did. The Doomsday Book mentions vineyards, and um, in the centuries there were several more vineyards as well. So wine would have been made then, and that was a warming period, so the grapes would have ripened enough to make wine and, and fairly decent wine. But then in the 14th century, the mini ice age came about and it became too cold for grapes to ripen. So no wine being made here. But what cool weather is really good for is apples. So we're having cider again in this case. So the cider, the apples, stayed throughout this cold period whereas the grapes didn't.
2: Fortified wines, that's another type of wine. When did these reach English palates and If people don't know what a fortified wine is, um, can you explain that, Jane?
1: Yes. Fortified wine is regular wine that's with added distilled grape spirit. What that does, it slightly um, increases the alcohol level or it arrests the fermentation. It stops the yeast from fermenting. And so that retains some sweetness or it's used as a preservative. So there's three reasons. Preservative. Arrest fermentation because you want a sweeter drink or you want to increase your alcohol level. And fortified wine in England, there's written evidence of it in the 12th century. Sherry, which uh, is also known as sack, by the way, or sherish, S-H-E-R-I-S-H. Also Madeira, which is also known as canary or malmsey, That started to come in around the 15th century port was a little later on that was late 17th century and then there's a, a fortified wine from sicily called masala which came in around the 18th century affluent people tended to drink fortified wines and fortified wines were there's a real association with british traders they were actually involved in the development certainly of port and masala if you think about port some of the names of the big port houses are mostly scottish actually but they're british names Coburns, Grahams, Taylors. So what was happening, the Portuguese wine needed to be preserved on its long journey to England, its long sea journey. So that's why those traders, those English wine traders in Portugal, added a little bit of grape spirit to it. Same with Masala as well. The 1770s, there was a British merchant in Sicily, he added grape spirit to the local wines And that's the story of fortified wine.
2: Right. And are they all imports from the Mediterranean, effectively? Yes, they are. ports, even today, can't really be made in the UK or in England, or or can it?
1: You could do, but you couldn't call it port. So that's a protected name. Same with sherry. That's a protected name. And Madeira as well, masala. So they are protected names. But you could make a version of of those um, fortified wines by using English wine or Welsh wine, and adding some spirit to it, ah. some grape spirit, but you'd, you'd have to call it something else. You'd probably think of a name well, or, just or... just thought
2: of one, actually. Um, on. I think English Heritage could sell one in the gift shop and they could just call it, instead of port, they could call it fort. Ooh! <laughs> so it'd be a fortified wine. It does what it says on the bottle, and I guess that translates into uh, the French for strong as well. So if you drink that, you will feel strong, Funny. I suppose.
1: <laughs> I think you need to trademark that toot sweet.
2: We'll have a conversation later on with English Heritage. And, yeah. <laughs> Another type of wine is, of course, mulled wine, which is a, a warmed wine. It's a popular festive drink. Do we know the origin of, of this one, Jane?
1: Mulled wine it was a Roman thing. I, but heating wines and adding spices or fruits into it, the Romans certainly did that. Greeks might have done it as well ancient Greeks and so when countries get invaded the invaders bring their traditions with them and that would have been one of them so mulled wine mulled cider as well mulled beer you can actually mull ale that was a tradition to get a hot poker stick it in the fire and then dump it into your mug of ale and and warm it up is it still quite a
2: popular drink these days because I know mulled cider is also quite popular isn't it
1: yeah, so you go into pubs quite often and you you can smell the mulled wine on the mulled cider and it's very very um, attractive smell and you think, ooh, I, I want to drink that. People don't tend to do it with beer anymore or ale because it's a little more um, cumbersome. You'd need a metal tankard really to stick your poker in the fire and then dump it into the metal tankard. So no, it's not, not a real thing, not in, in pubs anyway. Mm. Going back
2: to wine specifically though, do English heritage sites have a specific wine connection? Are there any... Places where they would have had vines and and winemaking, Cameron?
0: You could say that wine is virtually everywhere and any Roman period site will turn up sherds of amphorae, some more, some less, according to the type of site and how close it is to the continent. In the later Roman period, wine is coming to Britain in wooden barrels, so there isn't the evidence. Those don't survive well in the ground. And the evidence for its consumption then is really wine glasses. And I think it's very interesting that the British, from the word go, were crazy about wine glasses. (laughs) They loved the wine and they always wanted a lovely glass to drink it out of. So wine glasses were a huge thing in Roman Britain. Then with the end of of Roman rule in Britain, wine stops making it over here for a few centuries, with the exception of these sites in the far southwest like Tintagel. And when it starts to come back again, it is transported again in barrels. So the evidence for it is usually in the form of documentary references to it being purchased. And we did a podcast last year about a feast at Stokesy Castle. Do you remember, Charles, Mm. where this came up? Yes, so so a great long shopping list for that particular feast when the bishop came to visit. But you also get evidence in the form of fancy drinking vessels on the high-status sites like, like the English Heritage Castles. The monastic sites would certainly have attempted to have their own vineyard, as they needed wine for communion, but with varying degrees of success in the British climate. At the English Heritage Site of the Bishop's Palace at Lincoln, A vineyard was recently replanted and that is supposed to be the most northerly vineyard in Britain just random bits of evidence. Something you come across in a number of the English heritage medieval properties is doorways into cellars or kitchens or butteries where they stored the butts or the barrels, where semicircles have been cut out of the stone door jams at about waist height, making them just wide enough to accommodate the widest point of a barrel for wine or beer. And that is one to look out for when you go visiting the sites.
2: We don't have much time, but we do have a question which we can fit in about some other spirits which other people might be keen to know about. Gin, whiskey, and brandy. How do they all fit into the history of alcohol production and consumption in England, Jane?
1: So in England, we have been a nation of spirits drinkers as well. And the earliest spirits that we would have experienced here were probably brandy. That was the uh, 14th, 15th century that would have been imported from France Whiskey was seen as a peasant drink, and that was a Scottish drink. Ireland and Scotland, that was their drink. And in England, we would have had whiskey, but it was considered to be peasants because we had brandy, and that was a much more affluent, much more sophisticated drink. So, whiskey started coming in from the late 15th century. It really made its mark when, in the 19th century, there was a terrible blight that happened in the in European winemaking. It was a little aphid that destroyed all the vines. It was called phylloxera, the aphid was, and it decimated the European wine industry, including uh, in France, where cognac and armagnac was produced. So whiskey became an alternative. So that was the 19th century. But we'd had another drink, which was very um, important and very historic in this country, and it was gin, and that was the late 17th century. Gin evolved from a Dutch drink called Geneva, and it became gin. You can see where the word gin comes from, Geneva, which is spelt G-E-N-E-V-R, Geneva as it was pronounced in English. But gin became the drink of, of the poor and the underclass. It was actually cheaper than beer, but it was much stronger than beer and ale, and um, it destroyed societies and turned people into alcoholics, but it created a lot of tax and a lot of income for the government. So that's a whole programme in its own right. And I don't know if English Heritage has any connections with gin, but that's a really interesting story about gin. Yes, so we're a a nation of spirit drinkers as well.
2: And gin comes from juniper berries, doesn't, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it's distilled from any sort of sugar, fermented um, cereals or rice or potatoes, sugar beet, fruits. And then the primary flavouring is juniper. And that's the legal definition that it must be primarily flavoured with juniper. And in fact, the word juneva is the Dutch word for juniper. And the woman's name Genevieve is French for juniper.
2: And how's whiskey made Exactly.
1: Whiskey is made from fermenting cereal, usually barley, but you can make it from any cereal at all. But if you, you've got an Irish or a, a Scotch whiskey, then it's made from fermented barley, malted. You know, you've, you've malted barley and then you've fermented it. So it's almost beer. It's ale, actually. It's ale pre-hops and ale with no other flavourings at all.
2: And brandy, how's that made?
1: Brandy's made by fermenting usually grapes, but you can make it from other fruits as well. So it's a fermented fruit It's fermented fruits which are then distilled.
2: And speaking of whiskey again, you mentioned Scotch and Irish. There are actually two different spellings, I believe. I believe the whiskey with an EY is the Irish uh, version of whiskey, and the whiskey with the KY is Scotch. Is that right?
1: That's right. And in certain parts of the world, they will, like America, USA, Canada, India. Scandinavia, wherever you are, they will spell it which one of those two ways. And that's usually because in Canada and in, in USA in particular, it depends who emigrated there. Was it the Scots? They tended to go a lot to Canada and they took their spelling with them. Whereas there were a lot of Irish um, immigrants into the USA, they took their spelling with them. But there was a difference at one time in that Irish whiskey was actually higher quality than Scottish whiskey. And so the Irish wanted to differentiate themselves from the Scots and that less high quality. And so they insisted that their spelling was E-Y. Nowadays, Scotch whisky has lots of laws associated with it. um, And the spelling is one, it's legally ordained that you must spell it K-Y rather than K-E-Y for Scotch.
2: As we sort of begin to close out our conversation, we've been told on bottles of alcoholic beverages certainly in recent years, to enjoy them responsibly in England. Have there been any times in history where alcohol was banned for social reasons, Jane?
1: In England, there has never been a prohibition, not a legal prohibition anyway. But various governments have tried to manage consumption. And even now, we look at age limits. That's a way of managing consumption. Licensing laws, the threat of losing a licence if you allow drunkenness on your premises reduced opening hours and passing laws on uh, public drunkenness. But alcohol has never been banned. Now, in the Elizabethan era, there was an attempt to stop men from going to the pub on a Sunday afternoon because they wanted the men to be practising their archery skills. There was no standing army, so the men of the country, they were the ones who had the skills to fight and to use weapons. And archery was a a way of uh, fighting. And so if the men were in the pubs, then they weren't out on the butts practicing their archery. And then this is really interesting, I think. In 1916, the government actually nationalized some pubs. And they were in the areas where there were munitions factories. So in Gretna Green or Gretna, the the village of Gretna and Enfield in northern um, London, they closed a lot of pubs in that area because there were lots of munitions factories and it was the middle of World War One, and they needed those workers to be really productive to make those munitions. So they closed the pubs, but what they also did, the pubs that remained open, they changed the format of them, and they made them more family-orientated. And so families would go there to eat some food and to have some sort of entertainment. So it wasn't just men getting drunk and standing there for hours and hours. This is also when... The licensing laws changed as well, and they were restricted to the pubs closing just after lunch. So they'd open at maybe midday, they'd stay open for a couple of hours, they'd close for a few hours, open again at six o'clock and then close at 10. So they were giving people less time to actually drink. Also, the level of alcohol was reduced in beer. Most people drank beer at the time. So the level of alcohol was, was purposely reduced, So it happened until, I think, around 1929, the government still owned these pubs. So I think it's quite extraordinary to think that government were um, nationalising pubs at one time.
2: Mm. And I suppose in recent years, 24-hour drinking, 24-hour licensing of pubs was brought in, wasn't it? So rules have been more relaxed, I suppose, over time.
1: Yes, those laws, by the way, that came in about 24-hour licensing... Did away with those World War I licensing hours. So it was only in the mid-90s that pubs were allowed to stay open all day. I don't know if you remember, you'd go to the pub for lunch and it would close at three o'clock I think I was and you too were thrown out on point, the street. But, um... Too young. Well, it was horrible. And then they'd open again at 5.30 or 6. And so that licensing change in the mid-90s brought in 24-hour licensing. And some people think, oh, pubs been open 24 hours. You know, I don't know of any pubs that are open for 24 hours. Yes, they have the the legal right to be if they want to, but most pubs aren't. They still close at 11 o'clock. So it wasn't a revolution in people drinking more or, or having longer time to drink. Pubs still restrict their opening. Most pubs do anyway.
2: Yes. I do seem to remember, yes, that at university, I think we would get kicked out of the pub at uh, about 11 o'clock at night, I think it was. Uh, last yes. orders around then.
1: Most still do, actually. Mm. Um, I mean, a lot of um, public transport stops anyway, so people can't get home from the pub. So that's another reason that that they they don't stay open for much longer.
2: Finally, do you have any suggestions for interesting festive drinks that have a historical link, Jane?
1: Well, I do. And it's uh, mulled wine or cider. Instead of having that, try something called Negus.
2: How do you spell that?
1: Negus is N-E-G-U-S. Now this will be done at home and you do need to have a, um, either a a ceramic mug or a um, metal tankard because it's to do with that poker. The poker that I mentioned about heating it up. So you get ale and then you add spices and some fruit peel and you can have it as wine or cider if you want to as well. And then just heat it by plunging the poker into the fire. And people used to do that in previous centuries or what you can do, spruce beer. Now, spruce beer isn't beer as we know it. It's made with fir buds, so spruce fir buds, or the tips, treacle, or brown sugar, and water. And you boil them together, and you cool the brew down, and then you add brewer's yeast. You ferment it for a couple of weeks. And you can find this recipe online, by the way. You drink it cold. And it was a favourite of Jane Austen. And spruce is a really good wintry flavour, I think. Now, this is a good one. This is something that Charles Dickens used to play and it's called Snapdragon and it's also known as Flap Dragon. It's a parlour game and what you do, you heat a bowl of brandy and you place raisins in it and then you flame the brandy and you pluck the raisins from the flames and eat them. So it's the sort of game where you um, have to sign a waiver, <laughs> basically. Yes. But Charles Dickens used to play it and it was popular from the 16th century it was a family game
2: involving children (laughs) yes right okay children
1: and your grandma as well and then lamb's wool this is mulled ale with sugar and spice and then you have roasted crab apples floating around on the top of it and that's a medieval English drink
2: so all of these drinks have varying levels of health and safety concerns basically in in our modern age (laughs)
1: Yes, but people still survived to drink them another day, didn't they? Yes.
2: I don't think I would try the migas, especially after a few drinks, because of the hot you know, the fire and the hot poker and you know, you don't want to burn yourself and I dare say it might also taste a bit charcoal y once you've drunk the liquid.
1: Yes, but you know, if you like smoky flavours okay. you can get smoked beer actually, or um Try it. I think the spruce beer might suit you better then. Yes. No danger involved in that at all. Perhaps.
2: Do you have any final recommendations for a Christmas or festive drink, whatever your religious convictions, Cameron?
0: Well, in my household, we do have mulled cider because my husband is a cider maker. And every year I will usually do slow gin or maybe something a bit more exotic. I think one year I did raspberry vodka. So you warm up your cider and you give it a shot of something nice and fruity and some spices and maybe a bit of honey and good to go.
2: Excellent recommendations there from both of you. Thank you very much. I'm sure people will have a go at trying out some of those and um all i can say i suppose to conclude this episode on festive alcoholic consumption is uh, cheers
0: cheers
1: cheers and wassail as well and wassail <laughs> yes
2: and happy christmas
1: happy christmas happy christmas
2: you've been listening to the english heritage podcast Next week, we'll be talking about another kind of festive merrymaker, the Lords of Misrule. Don't take yourself too seriously. I That's a great Christmas tradition, isn't it? Christmas is very much a, a festival for children. To some extent, we revert to childhood as well. And gosh, isn't it all the better for that. Thanks for listening. See you next time.